1 Corinthians 1, verse 18, for the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. That's our text for tonight, but through verse 31 is all one thought, and we'll get to that next time. So let's, let's read on just for sake of understanding the context. For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him are you in Christ Jesus, who of God has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for time together in your word with your church. We ask your blessing upon this time tonight. We pray for Brother Chris, who was otherwise going to speak tonight, ask you to bless his illness and help him as he heals. And Lord, we ask for your blessing on this time as we look to the book of Corinthians. Speak to us through your word and the power of your Holy Spirit. As we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So Paul has pointed out to us the divisions that are in the church in Corinth, the point of his writing. We, we can use verse 10 as sort of our proof text for that or our thesis or our jumping in point. As he says there, I beseech you, brethren, by the name of Jesus, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. And you'll remember from last time that he talked about you guys have gone so far in these divisions that you're beginning to compete on who baptized you. Some of you are saying, well, I was baptized by Paul. Well, I was baptized by Apollos. Well, I was baptized by Cephas. And Paul says, this is how the world operates. This is not how the church should be operating. He now begins to present his case, and he does it with this contest of God's wisdom versus man's wisdom. And that's what I want to speak to you about tonight from these verses is this presentation of Paul's case of God's wisdom versus man's wisdom. And just to give you the, the short of it, verse 25 lays it out clearly when he says, the foolishness of God is greater than the wisdom of man. I'm going to state that a different way. Even God at his most foolish, which doesn't exist, but you get the point, is greater than man at his wisest. What would be man's wisest? Surely we would say the Tower of Babel was a time when even the heavens noticed man working in man's wisdom. But what did the wisdom of God do there? Confound the language, separate them. Where is this Tower of Babel today? Other than in 
and our history given to us by the Lord. So this is the idea that Paul is presenting here. It's man's wisdom up against God's wisdom. Now, I want you to understand that this is nothing more than an exercise for Paul. It is not, not at all a contest. He's, he's pointing out here the foolishness of this church because human worldly wisdom is nothing up against the wisdom of God. So I'll give you three headings tonight. The preaching of, Christ, of the cross or the preaching of Christ. The pleasure of God. And then the power of Christ. Those three headings are how he lays out his argument in verses 18 through 25. So we begin with verse 18 in the preaching of the cross. For the preaching of cross of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. Well, what is the preaching of the cross? The preaching of the cross is what we would call the doctrine of the cross or the doctrine of crucifixion. This idea that God became man and was murdered by humans, his creation. And it was an abusive, and it was a, it was a cruel, and it was a, an embarrassing cru- thing, this crucifixion. Roman citizens were not allowed to be crucified because it was such a scandalous thing. And then those who were crucified were seen as lowly of the low, the sinner of sinners, the worst of the worst, So Paul says here, the preaching of the cross, this idea that Jesus was God and that he went to the cross, to those who are perishing, this is a foolish idea to them, but unto us who are saved, this is the power of God. Now Paul's going to address other things with this argument, but in this time of making this address, he's referring back to the gospel constantly. I think it's a wonderful a wonderfully complex way to go at it. He's actually dealing with divisions in the church and how they're arguing and being like the world. And in making that point for argument, he makes a wonderful presentation of the gospel. It's a good use of the time. It's a good use of the space. I read a Mark Twain quote recently. He said, I don't have it exactly, but along the lines of, given more time, I would have written a shorter letter. Does anybody know the quote better than that? But You get the idea. love that quote. This is what Paul is doing here. And I would say to us Christians, let's hasten to do the same. God has people in our lives that we are to be sharing the gospel with. It's foolishness to them because they are perishing. But should the Holy Spirit of God quicken them, make them alive, to be receptive to the seeds of God's word through the the, the knowledge of the gospel, let's not overcomplicate things. Let's not take them through the 82 points of our catechism. And say, now make sure you you can comprehend every bit of this before you make your profession of faith. Let's not even say, let's hurry you down to the gathering of the church and let you talk to the preacher. Let's just let them be saved. Tell them what you did. Show them what the Bible says and let them pray and receive salvation. It's God's free gift. And Paul is doing the same here. He's addressing the church. These are saved people. But in addressing the church, he gives a wonderful presentation of the gospel His premise here is what we would call a given. I learned about a given in algebra. Some things are just understood, right? And so this is what Paul is doing here. He laid out that given very well in Romans 1.16. You know Romans 1.16. What are are some words that it says? None of you listen to Christian rap. I mean, come on. No, there's a Christian rap song that my children like, I'm ashamed to admit. (laughs) <laughs> and it's called Romans 1.16. But you know it. It's on t-shirts. I am not ashamed of the gospel. 
Now you know Romans 1.16? Absolutely. Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is, so he, he's saying very clearly, what is the gospel of Christ? Romans 1.16, It is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Well, that's, that's well said, isn't it? Almost as if the Holy Spirit inspired him in himself. Great, great explanation of the gospel. So there's his premise. His argument to make his point is this. If your standard is human wisdom, then the preaching of the cross is foolishness. If your standard is human wisdom, then the preaching of the cross is foolishness. Those who are perishing, the unbelievers in the world, live according to the standards of sinful human wisdom. Therefore, they wrongly conclude that the message of the cross is foolishness. What seems foolishness because of man's wanting wisdom of words is really the highest wisdom of God. They can't get past their idea of their own human wisdom to get into what is God's wisdom that is counter to the cultural wisdom of their day. And we think that's hard in our day, but you need to think about it in the the, the time Paul is writing in here, what was going on with false religions and world religions and other gods and the idea of these other gods. I think the best we could wrap our heads around it now would be kind of the hero man worship that we have. That's sort of the version of what they were doing there. And if this guy says it, well, then it must be right and I'm behind him because he's my guy. When that doesn't line up with what would be the foolishness of the gospel given in a foolish way, preaching, well, then it would be hard for you to take in. On the other hand, Paul says, the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. So the Holy Spirit changes the perspectives of those being changed. Could you testify to the fact that you see things differently now than you did prior to being saved? You have different interests, you have different ideas, I think it's a wonderful thing when a person who otherwise could care less about a Bible, it was just some religious book that their grandmother had, and then all of a sudden you might find this rough and tough dude who Christmas comes around and they say, what, what do you want, a new leather belt? I'd like a new Bible. What an odd thing for that guy to want this. The Holy Spirit has changed his perspective. Those who follow Christ rightly perceive that the cross that the cross of Christ and the preaching of cross is not foolishness, but the power of God bringing salvation from sin and death. Those who are being saved, to those who are being saved, this is power. The preaching of the cross, the gospel, is the power of God. They hear the message, they accept it by faith, and the miracle of regeneration begins to take place in their lives. What seems to the world as Weakness in God's plan of salvation and in his mode of delivery by his apostle is really his mighty power. So see Paul's point being made here to the Corinthians. As he says, the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. He presented this contrast between Believers and unbelievers to remind the Corinthians that the way of Christ does not rely on sinful human wisdom. And by this means, he pointed out that 
they thought and acted like unbelievers when they arrogantly and pridefully divided themselves. I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. Be that way. That's the way of the world. You're the church now. So, so what are we to do with this? Well, first, I want you to notice a very solemn fact here. In fact, it's another one of those givens. Paul does not even draw attention to it other than stating as, it, as if it was just a common fact for anyone who would understand his letter or for us who would understand the scripture, that there are two classes of people, those who perish and those who are saved. Beware in the modern society of this whole thing of trying to get rid of any sort of class. Rich, poor, black, white, male, female. We're trying to get rid of all of that. I mean, it's, it's not even popular now to have political standings outside of those currently in power. Anybody that differs on either side of things. We've seen four years of one way, and now we're seeing four years of another way. And on both sides, everybody else are just idiots. I didn't mean for you to say amen there. I was just making the point that we've entered into this universalism in our society as if everybody has to be, it's like we're shooting for utopia. How boring utopia would be. Who would get up on Groundhog's Day and say, six more weeks of winter, six more weeks of spring. If it's utopia, we wouldn't have to worry about it. It'd be whatever degree you think it's supposed to be all the time. This is not the idea that God has created in the world in which we live. I'm glad there are differences. I'm glad there are distinguishments. As a man, I'm glad there are women. Amen, men? <laughs> Praise the Lord for beauty in the earth. I like you men, but you're ugly to look upon. You don't smell as good either. <laughs> what are we doing as a society? Well, if we're not careful, was that hard to sign there, Emerson? I'm sorry about that. <laughs> when, when you hear the interpreter huff and puff, you're either going too fast or you've said something you really, really shouldn't have said. When we live in that society, though, if we're not careful as the church, it'll infect us. And it'll infect us like this. Everybody's basically good. And it's hard to believe that the grace we just sang about would send anybody to hell. Paul writes as a given here. There are two distinct classes of people. There are the foolish. Let me say that a different way. There are the, the sinful who see the gospel as foolishness. And there are the quickened who see it as the power of God. They see it as God's wisdom. So we can't step past that. church will be divided from the world but to be divided within is to be like the world from which we have been divided that's the second point of application I want to make from verse 18 first being there are two classes of people second the church will be divided from the world but to be divided within is to be like the world from which we have been divided may it never be Move on, verse 19 through 21, then we see the pleasure of God. So we begin with the power of the cross, or the preaching of the cross, and then we see the pleasure of God. Specifically, that heading is built off of the middle of verse 21, where Paul writes, it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. But let's, let's work our way to that point. Verse 19, for it is written, so he begins with that 
word for at the beginning of the sentence, leading us into a thought from verse 18, which leading us into a thought from verse 17, which leading us into a thought from verse 16. You see how that flows in your scripture there. In fact, I like the way most Bibles are laid out to where you have small, four small columns on the page. I've got a Bible now that doesn't do that. But a neat thing about the four small columns is repetitions, parallels, things that are identifiers to doctrine and scripture seem to be laid out better in this versus I've got one that's one column across the page. And I like it and I use it and I read it that way. It's laid out more like a a novel or another book that you would read. But I never understood until I had used that version, that, that, that layout of scripture, why at some point somebody started laying it out in four columns like that. Do y'all know what I'm talking about? You're looking at me funny. Like I've got a column here, column there, column here, column there. Yeah, the, just the one here, one there. Yeah, it is two columns. You're right. Yeah. Yes. Agreed. Well, you're the author in here, not me. Who, what, who has, anybody have just one? You have one column here, one column there? Yeah, like you've got a, is that a journaling Bible? Yeah, so it's made you room for that over there. I'm not insulting Stephen's Bible. Just mine's better. But, but here's, notice this in there, and you might be able to do this with yours with these words. But mine, I can see 16, 17, 18, and 19 very clearly. And I can see that 17 begins with 4, 18 begins with 4, 19 begins with 4. So I'm seeing a repetition that is occurring in the text versus if that was just given to me in paragraph form, I'd really have to have a careful eye to point out that Paul is in in three sentences in a row doing the same thing three times. Is that making sense? Okay. So I like that layout. Mostly what I, I don't think Paul was writing intending it to be laid out this way. So we need to be able to pick up as we read this letter, as we read literature, as we read Bible doctrine, that it's a continuation of a sentence here. All of this leading to this point being made in verse 21, that it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that belief. So what is it that pleases God? And how do we get to that which pleases God? Well, he says here in verse 19, it is written. Since everything else I've just said, now let me give you this. It is written. Now, when the Bible says it is written, what should we assume is being done there? Yes, he's going to quote to us scripture from somewhere else in the Bible. So it is written. Well, what is written? I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. I believe this is Isaiah 29, 14. You might have a couple other references there in your Bibles if yours has it under that. Does anybody else have other cross-references under that verse? No? What do you have? Yep, I've got Job 5.12, and there, I have another one. Does anybody else have it? Galatians 17.14. What do you got, Caleb? All right, Matthew 11.25. And I've got Jeremiah 8.9, right? If you're tracking with us here, these are just little references written under that verse in our Bibles there. So I want to make this clarification to you, and that usually I'll say this is just a quote from, and you'll see in your Bible that it confirms what I just said to you. And the reason I pointed that out is because what he says here is not exactly, he didn't quote it word for word. He, he quotes it indirectly. And so there are multiple times in the Old Testament where we find something written similar to this, and so all, that's what all of those references are. Do we get mad at Paul for not quoting directly? 
are we thankful that something occurs more than one time in the scriptures? I'm thankful that this thing occurs more than one time in the scriptures. Well, what does it say? Isaiah 29, 14. Therefore, behold, I will proceed to do a marvelous work among this people, even a marvelous work and a wonder. For the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hid. That's what Paul is talking about here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. This is an emphasis that all of man's wisdom will be destroyed. Isaiah warned here that God would frustrate the intelligent, the philosophical, and the religious outlook humans raised against his revelation. We saw that happen in the life of Christ. We're studying Luke right now. And the religious leaders are beginning to scoff at Jesus. And then they will begin to accuse Jesus. Then they will begin to plot against Jesus to kill him because they're having a hard time with God's revelation in their world of their time. As Messiah is manifested, they're saying, nah, it can't be. Even in the religious, they've grown so philosophical, so intelligent, so theological, Poor theology, but in their world, still theological, that they have an issue there. Well, this is what Paul is writing about here. He used this Old Testament quotation to show the Corinthians that a fundamental contrast existed between the true wisdom of God and the wisdom of the world. John Calvin writes about this. I want to read you his quote. He shows still farther, Calvin talking about Paul. Paul shows still farther. From the testimony of Isaiah, how unreasonable a thing it is that the truth of the gospel should be regarded with prejudice on the ground that the wise of this world hold it in contempt, not to say derision. For it is evident from the words of the prophet that their opinion is regarded as nothing in the account of God. From a theological point of view, when Calvin got done saying that, all the nerds in the room said, boom, roasted. He just laid it on them there. He says, it's evident that their opinion is regarded as nothing in the account of God. The wisdom of this world is vain. The wisdom of this world is worthless when it exalts itself against God. The wisdom of this world is helpful. Somebody decided at some point that we should be brushing our teeth. That's good news. Then they decided we should be doing it with paste. Then they should be decided we should be doing it with paste that, is, that smells good. And boy, it's just come forever away since then, since somebody decided at some point I need to clean these things in my mouth that chew up food. Well, that's good wisdom. I am thankful for it. But if we begin to, to worship the maker of the toothpaste because we say, well, as they don't let our teeth die, then surely it won't let our souls die. And so we're forever indebted to the maker of the toothpaste and the toothbrush. We see what a silly thing that is because you're looking at me like, what is this guy talking about? Can you imagine what it must be to be God? And they say, oh, we're going to worship this God and that God and these things and then this way. And all of this man's wisdom, all of it, trying to get down to that philosophical answer of what is the meaning of it all? Or where do we come from? Where are we going? The man's wisdom assures him. If nothing else, man's wisdom will assure him that he can earn his own salvation. Even if that wisdom is worded like this, I don't believe in any of that. What is that saying? I can earn my own salvation. 
Well, I don't think I need salvation. That's still saying I can earn my own salvation. I think when I die, it's just going to be over and there's going to be black. You're just saying you can earn your own salvation. Because in all of that, the attempt is there to escape eternal damnation. There's not a person who says in a serious way. Now, people have said this in scoff, but there's not a person who says this in a serious way. I really hope that I burn for all of eternity in hell. That would be an insane person. Man's wisdom assures him that he can earn his own salvation. The gospel, though, sets aside all of man's efforts to save himself and presents Christ as the only way to God. In verse number 20, then, Paul presents us these four questions, and it's a distinct challenge on the subject. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? So he said in verse number 19, I'm going to destroy the wisdom of the wise. I'm going to bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. And then he begins to question, well, where are these wise people? Where are these scribes? Where are these disputers? Now, what exactly is he talking about there? So where's the wise? This is, in my mind, I go to Pilgrim's Progress. John Bunyan's Worldly Wise Man. I like that one in the movie. I, I, it's good in the, in the text, but the, the people that did this cartoon movie just recently did a really good job of portraying worldly wise men. They took some liberties, but it really jives with our culture now. This, this person who just knows things. The expert. That person that you say, ask them, they know. What was that commercial? Ask so-and-so he knows. Oh, it's off It's a Wonderful Life. There's a picture on the wall. George Bailey's a little kid. The pharmacist got the bad prescription, and he sees the advertisement that says, ask dad he knows. You remember this from that movie? Yeah. Well, this is the worldly wise man. This is the expert. He is the one Paul is talking about here. Where is the wise? Where is the expert? Where is that one who knows? And then he says, where is the scribe? Where is the scholar? Where is the interpreter? Where is the writer? Maybe not the one who knows, but the one who can find out. But where is your wise? Where is the one who knows? Where is the one who can find out for you? And then he says, where is the disputer? This is the philosopher the debater. This is the one who can convince. So you've got one in the world's wisdom who knows. You've got one in the world's wisdom who can find out. You've got one in the world's wisdom who convince, convinces of what you've known and what you have found out. Then Paul just nails those three with his fourth question. Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Up against God, they all seem so foolish. Oh, but they're an expert. Oh, but they're a scholar. Oh, they're a philosopher, a debater. Well, up against God, they're foolish. Do you remember when Job began to question God? If anybody could question God, it was Job in that, in that scenario. And what was God's question back to Job that kind of set things right? Job, were you there when I formed all of this? You're questioning me about what's going on. Well, when I carved out the seas, and when I formed up the mountains, and when I put the sun here and the moon there and the earth there, when I said, let there be and there was, Job, where were you? Man, can you imagine getting that question as a response to your question from God? I think I'd just zip, and that'd be the end of it there. Up against God, man's wisdom seems very foolish. 
All throughout biblical history, God had proven himself greater than human wisdom. We just read to the children this morning the account of Abraham and Sarah being told they're going to have a child. The, the, whoever authored, I guess we say Moses authored Genesis, God authored Genesis, but they laid it out so wonderfully. It almost sounds like Sarah's got her ear to the door with a cup. God's in there talking to Abraham or these representatives from God. And she, she hears she's going to have a baby and she falls down laughing. <laughs> Reminds me of I Love Lucy. Something like that, you know. And Sarah says, you mean as old as I am? The text says the time of women had passed her, right? You think as old as I am I'm supposed to have a baby? Yeah, right. And God presents this wonderful question up against human wisdom. Who knows the question? I wouldn't know it except we read it this morning, but I love it. Nobody? Yeah? Is anything too hard for God? Now, this is not a part of this sermon, but boy, don't forget that. You've got some hard stuff in your life. You've got some seemingly impossible stuff in your life. You got some stuff that you're like, yeah, I'm like Sarah. Is that, could, can that really happen? There's no way this can happen. And God's answer to her, and then God's proof to you and I, is not only this question, is there anything too hard for the Lord? But then, boom, here comes Isaac. Great. We think, I think we think there are things too hard for God. Moses is another good example of man's wisdom up against God's wisdom. On multiple instances. Lord, it's hard. Pharaoh's not going to let your people go. And then plague one. Okay, let them go. But wait, wait, wait. I changed my mind. Then plague two. Let them go. Well, changing my mind. And I mean, it just keeps going like that. Can you imagine the conversations? And some of it is recorded, but a lot of it is not. Can you imagine what's going through Moses' mind or what him and the Lord might have been talking about through all of that? And then they get to leave. And they got a mountain on one side and a sea on the other side and Pharaoh's army chasing from behind them on, on that side. Human wisdom would say what there? Yeah, we're doomed. Give up. Beg for your lives. Start making bricks right there on the seashore and they'll see how useful you are. They'll let you live. But God's wisdom said, you know that stick that you've been toting around? Raise that thing up and watch what happens. I think if it had been modern day, we'd been looking for the button. Where's the button to push to make this happen? That's pretty neat. But even then, you get across on dry ground, and human wisdom says there, well, we're across, but they're just going to keep chasing us. Parker came home from class the other day, and he told me this story. I guess y'all recently studied about this, maybe. Or he was lying. If he was lying, I'm going to spank him. If he was lying about knowing Bible stories that he wasn't taught. But he came home and he said, he, he, he's so happy. He's kind of reached this time of life where he can throw in with the other boys. Before, like, he had no clue because he can't read. So like if we, we read at home, he can only listen. And you only pick up as much listening than you do reading yourself. And so even if we sing a song, like he only knows parts of it. So we'll be singing a song around the table, you know, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. And he might remember. And all of a sudden he'll yell, that saved a wretch like me. And he can't remember the rest, right? This is the, 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 the childness of his life. Well, he came home from class, and he had 
heard about the Red Sea, and Thomas was doing all the talking, and Parker couldn't get a word in edgewise, and then Thomas finally had to breathe. And then just in that one breath, Parker reminded us, and when the army got in there, God drowned them all. So he was happy about that part. Human wisdom says, we're across, but here they come after us. But God says, no, watch this. And off they go. They get out to the wilderness. And the people got hungry. I know I'm no better. Because I'm going to fail God in this same regard tomorrow probably. Or maybe even tonight before I get home. I'm going to talk to you about manna. But I need to tell you something before I forget it. And then we'll talk about manna. I was recently praying. And I was asking God for permission on something. I hope you guys do that. We should always be asking God permission to do what it is we think we should go do. And the Lord said to me. Why don't you just wait and let me do it? And my human wisdom said, yeah, but I need this now. You're kind of slow sometimes. I need it right now. I can manage it. Even though it'll be a stretch, like if it was a purchase, right? It it might require some debt, but I can manage the debt. And God's answer was, why don't you just let me handle this and then you won't have to have debt? I didn't like that answer. And I'm still in that waiting to see what he's going to do phase. And maybe I just made that up and God didn't actually say that to me. But I felt like that's what he said. Why don't you just let me handle it? So I'm waiting to see. But human wisdom says all of the other things. Why do I have to wait? Why did it ever get to this? Why don't you give it to me quicker? Etc. right? These, these Israelites went through these plagues unscathed. They escaped this army and watch this army be destroyed supernaturally by God. They get out to the wilderness and they get hungry. Now, if I think of all the other things, death of the firstborn, frogs, flies, darkness, they've experienced worse than being a little bit hungry, right? Chased by an army, that's worse than being hungry. And they immediately just go I mean, they get like eight row Baptist here. Moses? <laughs> it wasn't bad enough that we had to be slaves in Egypt. Now you bring us out here to die of starvation in the wilderness. What, were there not enough graves in Egypt for us? Wasn't that their accusation against him? That's man's wisdom. What is God's wisdom? Wait till in the morning. And Krispy Kreme donuts from heaven (laughs) fell down and these people ate them and the carbs didn't hurt them. Hallelujah. It's man's wisdom versus God's wisdom. And Paul is laying this out, remember, because there's divisions in the church and he is saying we're to be divided from the world, not be divided amongst ourselves like the world. But in this, he's laying out this great case. One, for those who are lost, to say to you, just stop in your own wisdom. Even God, if he was ever foolish, which he can't be, but if he were, he's way ahead of you at your, your most wise time. And if you're saved, he's already revealed that to you. So trust him more. Stop doubting. Stop not trusting him. Richard Pratt 
modern scholar wrote this. He said, God had also demonstrated the folly of human wisdom in Christ in that human wisdom would never lead anyone to think that God would allow his son to be crucified to save men. It's very true. Would you have designed it that way? We would have been like the Jews. Yeah, let's, I'm behind you, Jesus. Let's go find your throne. Let's set you up. Let's run the Romans out of here. He goes on to say, by acting in a way that human wisdom would label as foolish, God frustrated human wisdom. You want to be, have that illustrated well for you. Read C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, or watch the movie. The new movie's pretty good. When Aslan lays himself down on the table there and lets the witch stab him to death, that just seems like the end. You hear the children off in the bushes there, and you're watching this happen. I remember as a, as a kid, there was a really poorly made version of this, but we only watched Christian films, and when we watched those Christian films, we had to dig the TV out of the closet because the TVs were evil. Did y'all live through that era of Christianity? Did you, Caleb, did you grow up like that? Caleb's a pastor's kid, too. I remember the guy, do you remember the guy who chopped up the TV with an axe on the stage? Did y'all watch that film or go see this guy? Okay. He, he got a TV on the stage, and he beat it up with an axe. And they, cha- they ho- hooped and hollered and all of this. Had to go to the emergency room after that because glass got in his shoes. What does that say to you? Give up the man's wisdom here. Just preach God's wisdom, right? Anyways, we'd pull out the TV because mom and dad didn't think. We have them now. Like one in every room, all the channels, lots of movies. Don't get me wrong. But it was a poorly done version. But even then, I remember as a little, little, little boy. I didn't even know who C.S. Lewis was. I didn't know what the story was. I'm just watching about these kids who went through a wardrobe. That's pretty cool. And then they're in this other place, and this little boy eats this delicious pudding that just looks fantastic. And then they're watching this kingly lion who was talking to them and was just, you could tell, was powerful and in control. And he willingly lays himself down and lets the wicked witch kill him. And I'm thinking, no, fight, man. You know, I, I, was, I watched professional wrestling as a kid. Ooh, ooh, ooh. You know, beat him up. And he laid down, and I remember as a kid thinking, that's, that's not the way this goes. Batman and Robin always beat the Joker. Superman always gets the bad guy. The cowboy always shoots the villain. And this guy, he just lays down, this lion, I don't like the story anymore. That's human wisdom. Humans would have never designed it in God's way. Now, to, 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 to ruin the, the movie for you, if you've never watched it or the book, I assume we all have. The lion had to spill his blood. It's Jesus, right? That's the idea. He had to spill his blood, and he comes back to life and rules and reigns as the king and all of that. Human wisdom would label that foolish, but God frustrated human wisdom. Now verse 21. For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. So here Paul explains that the world's wisdom was unable to find ultimate reality, namely God himself, as hard as they tried to raise themselves to the heights of wisdom. Philosophers, scholars, thinkers, gatherings for discourse to to get into this, these gods they would create, the the worship of these gods, as, as hard as they tried, the greatest of them did not know God, though he had revealed himself to them all through general revelation. 
I'll give you a reference. I don't have time to go there. Romans 1, 18 through 20 is where he talks about they are without excuse. God, God has revealed himself. Even to the pagan, God has revealed himself to them. It's a good verse on general revelation. But, but I also want us to think about here all of those throughout biblical history. You, just, you start at the back and you go to the front there. That God revealed himself to through special revelation. Special revelation would be scripture, the words of God directly to humans. They understood very much, but still we find some in all of these stories denying him. Either in a moment or in a fatal decision, choosing human wisdom over God's wisdom. God's sovereign pleasure, in spite of this, was to choose something that the wise of this world would consider foolish. The crucified Savior. For after that and the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believed. By ordaining this seemingly foolish means of salvation, God made the so-called world's wisdom to be foolishness. R.C. Sproul wrote on this. He said, those who are wise according to the standards of the world think that the gospel is foolish. Since it identifies one who has suffered shameful crucifixion as the unique and only remedy of the plight of humanity. He says, the arrogance of human wisdom blinds unbelievers to the truth. But it's the pleasure of God. In that we see the power of Christ in verse 22 down through verse 25. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. The Jews wanted a sign outside of what had been given. I would submit to you that God had already given them a sign. He became man, born, of a, born as a babe of a virgin. He lived a sinless life. He was crucified. He did not stay dead. He resurrected from that death and is now alive again. Some lived and saw every bit of that and still rejected it and said, we, we want a sign. The Gentile Greeks, Paul says here, wanted to be able to discuss this. He says they seek after wisdom. They wanted to debate it. They wanted to set forth logically these things that they must believe. So we get verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block and unto the Greeks foolishness. So put 22 and 23 together. The Jews require a sign, but that's a stumbling block to them. The Greeks seek after wisdom, but, but that's just going to be foolishness to them. If they could grasp this wisdom outside of the making of life of the Holy Spirit. The preaching of a cross is a stumbling block and foolishness to them. Instead of a royal king to lead their military to overthrow Rome, Jesus became to the Jews this crucified Savior. I think Wearsby portrays the Jewish thought here very well. We don't, we don't know this, but we would make this assumption. He says, how could anybody, as if a Jew was making this question, how could anybody put faith in an unemployed carpenter from Nazareth who died the shameful death of a common criminal? We don't think about Jesus that way, but I think if he lived in our day, we'd get right in on that type of thinking. Dude's a carpenter who can't keep a job. He's a gypsy. And they found him guilty of something. They don't just crucify anybody. He's bound to be guilty. I don't care what anybody says. I trust our government. 
Well, maybe we don't take it that far. <laughs> that was the Jewish thought of the day. Instead of one wise and strong to solve their problems, these Greeks then struggled to see more in Jesus than a weak failure. Their society paraded human wisdom. They talked about and they pinned down profound things. This talk of dying on a cross, in its simplest form, just did not seem smart to the Greeks. Didn't seem smart to me at seven years old watching it on the movie either. Pratt says, a God who could not overcome his human enemies and who died at their hands is like a common thief was not a God one should reasonably trust for salvation. That was the mindset. Well, Paul simply states to refute that. Notice what he says there. Verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified. Put 22 and 23 together again. The Jews require Stein. That's a stumbling block to them. The Greeks seek after wisdom. But if they could grasp this wisdom, it would only be foolishness to them. In spite of all of that, we preach Christ crucified. Charles Hodge writes, This doctrine met the demands of neither class. It satisfied neither the expectation of the Jews nor the requirements of the Greeks. William MacDonald quotes someone. I don't know who his someone is that he quotes here. He just says someone has said. So I'm going to give William MacDonald quote for the quote. Here's what he says. Paul was not a sign-loving Jew nor a wisdom-loving Greek, but a Savior-loving Christian. In verse 24, Paul takes a different approach to what he is saying here. He says, but unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. So up until now, he's laid out the two sides of those opposed to the preaching of the cross. Now he reveals the effects of Christ, the power of God. Whether Jew or Greek, to those he calls, Christ is the power of God. Christ is the wisdom of God. And then we have this calling again. And that's a word that has recurred a lot here in this first Chapter. I spent a lot of time with you on it four or five weeks ago. The Greek word is kletos, K-L-E-T-O-S. It's the same as the earlier word that is used there, meaning a summons. It is someone who is called in this regard, is someone whose participation has been officially requested. Right? So read it like that in verse 24. But unto them which are called. But unto them whose participation has been officially requested. Or as I like to think of it better than that. Those who have been summoned by God... Both Jew and Greek, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. When God's grace touched their lives, their old standards of judgment fell away. Well, we want wisdom. Well, we want a sign. That goes away when God summons you. You see with new eyes. You understand that the gospel of the crucified Christ was the power of God that could rescue them from the dominion of sin and from divine judgment. It's Paul's thesis. You've been called. You know differently than the world. So, like verse 10, why are you being divided like the world? Why are you letting your clinging to the worldly wisdom cause divisions among you as the church? Verse 25 is just a concluding thought for tonight. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. His foolishness Wiser than men. Certainly we understand that God is neither wise nor weak. Never will be. But we get what Paul is saying. 
what seems to be foolish on God's part in the eyes of men is actually wiser than men at their very best. What seems to be weakness on God's part in the eyes of men turns out to be stronger than anything that men could ever produce. In this context, what is the foolishness or the weakness of God that Paul is talking about here? It's the gospel. He uses that word to drive home a point and probably to attract attention. But it is not foolishness. It is to the world, but to us, it's the power of God into salvation. So we see this contest Paul is presenting. We'll get to more of it next time. God's wisdom versus worldly wisdom. To those of us who have been saved, we understand fully Paul's presentation here. So we can grasp, surely we can grasp his address to the Corinthians in regards to their divisions. But more than that, we can see just how trustworthy we must find our God in daily walk. If we're not careful, we'll be in the God's wisdom world here when the church gathers. And we'll live in the man's wisdom world every other day of the week. I think Jesus would say to us in that regard, like he said to Peter, Oh, you of little faith. Trust him whatever the situation. Do whatever he asks you. Do whatever he's instructed you. Be hearers of his word, but also be doers of his word. And that's a true test. We call ourselves people of the faith, and we spend lots of time learning about the faith. But that doesn't prove that we are people of the faith. It's when we go out and do what we've learned that we are truly exercising the faith. And for those of you unsaved, I think this is a good proof text for you tonight. You can exclude this from the whole context of what we're talking about here and just have this as a proof text for your faith or the lack thereof. God's wisdom is not foolish. Rather, you can trust that God's wisdom is salvation And that God's wisdom is freedom. And you have a great crowd of witnesses right here to testify to that very fact in our own lives. Let's pray. Lord, we're so thankful for this time in your word. Thank you for these folks who've gathered tonight to study and to learn. Lord, I pray that we would take what's here and meditate on it in the days to come. That we would pray and ask for your Holy Spirit's empowerment to go then and live it out. Lord, help us to do that. Help us to not be saying that we trust you, but we only ever trust in man's wisdom. We are often very guilty of that. Help us to learn to lean on you. Help us to learn to trust in you, the Holy Spirit, who indwells us now. You came in the form of your son and lived and died for our sins to redeem us. But then Jesus himself said something better is coming. And the Holy Spirit has come now and baptizes every believer, lives in us. Why would we ever trust man's wisdom? We have the Holy Spirit of God and the word of God illuminated by the Holy Spirit to guide us. Help us to learn to lean on you. Lord, I pray for the unsaved, that they would have faith unto salvation. For it is by grace that we are saved through faith and not of ourselves. It's simply a gift. It's not of works, lest any of us boast. I pray this in Jesus' name.